Well, if you've been here for uh, the last few weeks, you will have begun to see, I hope, that the book of Exodus is actually a great book for Christians. It's not only a great story about how God worked in um, uh, Israel in ancient history, it is also a story which anticipates the way that God works for his people today. Uh, he once delivered uh, Israel, but now he delivers us. When God appeared to uh, um, Moses, we saw that it anticipated the appearance of Jesus, who arrived and declared himself with the same name, I am. Or when God delivered Israel last week um, uh, out of slavery in Egypt, um, we saw that actually some of the details in particular, like the Passover lamb, again anticipated Jesus. Lambs died for the sins of uh, Israelite families, but that was only a foreshadowing of Jesus dying for the sins of his people, for our sins. So when Christians read the book of Exodus, they're not just getting a history lesson. When Christians read the, the, the book of Exodus, we're learning about how God deals with us. And today we're going to learn something really, really important about how God deals with us. Difficult in some ways to digest, but very, very important. Because Israel, you see, are on the way now. The Passover has happened. Um, all the firstborn sons of Egypt have been, uh, 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 have been killed and Israel has been set free on the road to the promised land. But they're not there yet. In many ways now, for, the, for, for Israel's history, for a whole generation to come, they are living uh, an anticipation of what it's like for us to live now. Because we have been set free by Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven through Jesus' death. We have escaped the judgment of God because Jesus died for our sins. But we're not yet in the promised land. And so we are on the way. How is God going to treat Israel on the path to the promised land? You can bet your bottom dollar what the way he treats Israel is the way he will treat us on our path to eternity. So this is important. How is he going to treat us? The first um, uh, lesson that we are going to need to learn in the uh, words of a, an old hymn is God moves in mysterious ways. God works in very mysterious ways. And we start to uh, anticipate that in chapter 13, verse 17. The Lord, uh, sorry, uh, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country that was shorter. Um, just to give you some idea of the geography, and actually uh, scholars are not entirely confident of it, but here's a, here's a reasonable guess. The purple arrow here 
is the route that Israel took. Down through the, uh, the Sinai Peninsula, which is a, um, a, a, a desert, and at some point, and this is what people are not at all confident of, they, they crossed a sea which is described in, uh, in Exodus, not actually as the Red Sea, but as the Sea of Reeds. And it could have been anywhere from uh, um, uh, the Gulf of uh, Suez here to one of the Bitter Lakes further up or even some people suggest um, in, the, in the Delta of the Nile. We don't frankly know the bit of water that, that, uh, that they crossed. But what we do know is that this is a very, very roundabout route. There was a perfectly good and well-trodden route up to the land of Canaan. It's the top green line there that goes along the coast. It's called the way to the land of the Philistines. And that's the obvious way to go. But God does not guide them along the obvious route. First he takes them on uh, a roundabout um, path um, uh, through this uh, sea of, or towards this, this sea of reeds. We don't know exactly what it is. We are told um, in verse 18, or the NIV suggests in verse 18, that uh, the Egyptians are all, um, uh, that, sorry, the Israelites are ready for battle. Did you see that? The Lord led the people, verse 18, by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. seems very unlikely that he means ready for battle since uh, for the rest of the story they are completely unready for battle. They have no weapons. They've not been trained in weapons. Probably it just means in ranks. Probably it just means in an orderly way. At this stage at least they're following God in an orderly way. As they tramp through who knows where. They don't. But from um, a roundabout path, it seems to become a hopeless path. Chapter 14, verse 2. Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They had to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. They had to camp with their, with their backs against something so they can't run away right next to a, uh, to a well-known um, uh, Egyptian centre of population. What a good idea. The Lord seems to be cornering them, indeed, as he guides them along. Verse 19, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's, ho- uh, nine, sorry, Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth opposite Baal-Zephon. And not surprisingly, the um, Israelites are not terribly happy about it. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Hardly, though, it has to be said, a real cry of faith to the Lord, because look what they said to Moses. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They are... They are, they are whining, they are moaning, they are complaining, they are terrified, they know they are in big trouble. 
But you see, this is a very, very important lesson for us. If you've lived life as a Christian for a while, you'll, know, you'll, you'll, you'll have experienced this lesson in one way or another. God does not lead you by, so often in straight and easy paths. And one of the lesser uh, reported elements of Steve Jobs' now famous talk that he did to uh, Stanford graduation uh, uh, students that everybody seemed to be quoting was uh, another bit, not the bit about death, but he said another lesson that he'd learned was, as he put it, I think, um, join the dots. In other words, he was saying, actually, in anticipation in his life, he really had no idea where he was going or what he was doing. He just didn't. It was not a planned life. Only in retrospect could he see the pattern. Well, if that is true for people with no faith in God, let me tell you, it is even more true for uh, um, Christians. Do not expect to be led by straight and easy ways all the time. When God does that, it is lovely and it is a blessing and we rejoice in it and we thank him. But there is no guarantee that he will. If you want a planned life, read the uh, seven habits of highly effective people. Take out an insurance policy against everything, absolutely everything that you can, uh, uh, you can think of. Employ a life coach to write your life plan and listen to God laugh. We cannot plan our lives. And in particular, if you want a planned life, Don't entrust yourself to God. As I say, people who've lived for a while realise that. But this passage is about more than just the roundabout route that God often takes his people on. Now it gives us some explanation of what God is actually doing in that roundabout uh, path that he makes us walk. Did you see in verse 17? I didn't read it, but let me read it now. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not leave them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. He is accommodating to the weakness of the Israelites. You see, he knew that The Philistines were a highly organised and well-armed nation. And there would be big battles on the way for uh, uh, Israel if they went up that coastal path, the way to the Philistines. So it was in his mercy that he decided he would lead them through a more roundabout way Because God knows the future and God knows our capacities and God knows what, uh, um, uh, how the future will affect us. But note this, they didn't know what God was doing. We're let into it. Either perhaps because God spoke to Moses at the time, actually that seems doubtful because Moses doesn't uh, tell them what God is doing. More likely than in retrospect, um, 
uh, God uh, enabled Moses to understand what he was doing. At that moment, nobody had the foggiest what God was doing. But he was doing good. As we already said, the uh, uh, Israelites are pretty unimpressed with Moses and with God. And maybe that's not a surprising reaction. The, um, there's a story of St. Teresa of uh, Avila who uh, was riding to one of her um, convents on a horse when the horse bucked and uh, threw her off its back into and deposited her into a river and she was heard to say to God if this is how you treat your friends it's not surprising you have so many enemies it's easy to feel like that you know, when when some tragedy happens, when some difficulty occurs, when some disappointment impinges upon us, when, when, when a fondly hoped for ambition is dashed, with just the debilitating day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, drip of disappointments. Yeah, there are plenty of them in this life. We can start to grumble. I didn't become a Christian for this. What's God doing? Well, we must recognise that that, that we mustn't minimise the reality of evil in the world. This, This Bible passage is not saying that everything that happens to you is actually only good all, all of the time. There is a real malevolent spiritual force, Satan out there, who loves to do us damage. We live in a fallen world which is damaged by sin and which we, 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 and that damage impinges itself upon us again and again. Real evil does happen. But the Bible says again and again, it is saying here, over that real evil is a God who is working out good purposes for us. is a God who understands more than we understand, even about ourselves. And is, is weaving through the fabric of your life a golden thread of good. He may not tell you what he's doing. But, says the Bible, he is wise. God may withhold wealth from you. Because he knows that wealth is a very powerful idol. And you could easily easily be dragged away from your relationship with him by your money. God may withhold um, promotion and prominence and power and status from you. Because he knows that there are seeds of pride in your heart that would capsize you if he allowed that to happen. 
And so in, your, in his mercy he brings you down. The Apostle Paul once uh, was describing a, a wonderful um, visions that God had given to him in 2 Corinthians 12. And then he said this, In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh to trouble me. In other words, God allowed something which actually was intended by Satan malevolently and was in many ways a real evil, a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. He he doesn't tell us perhaps so that it has broad application uh, for us. But he gave a real bad thing to Paul, allowed it to happen for a good purpose. He saw that incipient pride in Paul's heart and he said, I can't allow that to grow. I must put something into Paul's life that will dash that pride again and again and again. Because it's more important to me that Paul is a humble man who loves me than a man who is, 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 is exalted because of his great visions. I, I don't know what trials will come into your life. I just don't know them. And I know that um, a, a source of those trials will be the evil and fallenness that there is in this world that is real and it is there. But I know too, because Scripture tells me again and again and again, that underneath that, there will be a good purpose that God is working out for you. And you may not know it. You may not know it till your dying day. We are given an insight into the mind of God in this story to be reassured that behind such events there are good purposes. But you're going to have to trust He is accommodating then, amazingly, to our weakness as he leads us in these roundabout ways. The yeah, second thing that is very clear is he is judging his enemies. Chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They're to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think... The Israelites are wandering around in the desert in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Pharaoh has long, we've seen the story, long since actually Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, and God has now begun to, to confirm that. To, 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 to add the final seal to that hardness of heart in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And here he is doing it again. But he's doing it in a very interesting way, isn't he? He's doing it by making the Israelites look pathetic. So that uh, Pharaoh thinks, I'm still in control. 
has no idea that he's absolutely not. Verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, after they've passed through the Red Sea, now they have escaped. We'll see, we'll examine that in just a minute. But they have escaped and this is what happens to Pharaoh. Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the entire army that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. It's shocking stuff. I'm not going to dwell on it a lot because we have seen the reality of the judgment of God over several weeks. I want you to notice though that, uh, that, that he was leading the Israelites in such a way as to confirm now his judgment on these Egyptians. The Egyptians, you see, were a very, very able people. Indeed, they were, um, they had the most advanced technology. When we read in uh, um, chapter 14, verse 7, that Pharaoh took 600 of the best chariots along with other chariots of, uh, with Egypt. It's a, it's a little hint, you see, that he was a technological innovator. Long before Apple Macintosh, here were people who were absolutely at the forefront of technology. They had produced light, fast chariots, the best ones, alongside some of the old uh, um, uh, chuggy ones as well. And all of these were coming against Israel. It looked like a completely one-sided battle, as it does today against God's people. All the power, all the money, all the technology, all the status always belongs to the rest of the world. And God's people always look pathetic. It's a part of God's plan. And yet God's people always win. For the first uh, 400 years of uh, the, the church, for instance, they were an absolutely despised minority, unable to uh, uh, to hold high office in uh, in the Roman Empire. Um, there were slanders and all sorts of rumours against them, and little petty bits of discrimination, and those people beat the empire. Rome fell and the church has thrived in this world for 2,000 years now. The Apostle Paul describes what it's like being a, uh, being a Christian in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, he says, we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, easily breakable, unimpressive, jars of clay, discarded when no longer useful by the world. And then he goes on, to show that this all-surpassing power is 
from God, not us. So you want status in the world? You, you, you want to belong to a, uh, to, a, to a high status, universally respected group? I was going to say go, go, go enjoy the Tory party, but um, that probably wouldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't work. Go and join some other group. Because you won't find it in the church. No. God loves to actually confirm the hardness of heart of the world by making his people appear weak so that his victory will be all the more glorious. He's accommodating to our weakness then. He is judging his enemies. And he's demonstrating his power in recreation. Obviously, he is demonstrating his power in deliverance and judgment and those sorts of things. But I want to pick this one out and help you to see it because it's not quite so obvious and yet it is very, very important. Look at verses um, uh, 21 and 22 as Moses stands by the Red Sea and the, the, this, 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 this sea, what it, whichever one it was uh, on the map, is, is parted so that they can walk through. Look at how it's described. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. uses very interesting language. I don't know whether you can think of the last time in the Bible before this when waters were described as divided. It was when God divided the waters in creation and made a vault above that had the waters and the seas below. And then God divided or parted and, and pushed the waters away again, says the creation story, and created dry land. And now here, God is doing an act of recreation in one sense, in, in microcosm as he delivers his people, dividing waters, creating dry land. It's not by accident that it's described in that way. God's work of deliverance for his people is a work of recreation for his people. And that... That, that, that solid earthly event is an anticipation, in fact, of a far greater cosmic event. There's an interesting connection with, between this story and uh, the New Testament that we need to, need to see for a moment, to start to see the, the, the way that the story of the Bible is going. It's actually in, the, in the Luke's Gospel where there is uh, um, also another event that involves cloud and light. Just like there was a pillar of, of fire providing light here and a pillar of cloud which sometimes enveloped and protect the, protected the Israelites. But this time, the cloud and light is associated with Jesus at his transfiguration. He 
becomes light. And at the end of the little story where he glows brighter than the, uh, the whitest clothes, that a, a cloud comes down and covers him. It's, it's, it's in part uh, an allusion back to this great event where God is light and cloud and now it is Jesus. But there's something very interesting that happens in the transfiguration with Luke. Moses and another prophet, Elijah, are there talking with Jesus as the disciples see him. And they are talking, says Luke, about his exodus. The NIV says uh, his departure, but it is literally his exodus. Jesus is going to have his own exodus. His own passing through the waters, this time of death. But it's actually going to be a moment of recreation because three days later Jesus will come alive again, be resurrected, be recreated. So this story of the Exodus is leading to Jesus' exodus into a new, recreated life, resurrection life. And Jesus goes ahead as the first one and all his people follow. Just like God here goes through the sea and all the people follow. Just as Jesus was risen from the dead, so all Christians are promised that we will be resurrected, recreated, and indeed that the whole of creation will be recreated. So this deliverance, the Exodus, is a recreation, and our deliverance, with Jesus going ahead of us, will be a recreation. That's what God is doing for you. He is leading you by a roundabout path and who knows why. We simply have to trust that he knows and understands us and he's got wisdom in the way that he works. He is leading us, apparently it seems, into a place of shame and helplessness and hopelessness but that is in part to simply confirm his judgment on the rest of the world that will scoff and think that they have won when they have not. And he is leading us ultimately, every single one of us who is a believer, through death to the glorious freedom of resurrection with Jesus going ahead. And one day we will be raised again in the new heaven and the new earth. What is God doing? Well, God is doing the most extraordinary thing you could possibly imagine. But it doesn't look like it. How then should we respond? What should we do? 
That's a really, really important thing because I know that that story has massive resonances with many people here. What should we do? Moses is very, very clear. Chapter 14, verse 13. Moses answered, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need be still. You are safe in God's hands. You are absolutely safe and secure. That safety extends beyond this life into eternity, beyond the waters of death, into new creation. That is the security that all Christians are called to trust in. And so, what do you need to do? Stand firm. Do not run around like the rest of the world. Do not be enthralled by those best chariots that Pharaoh always has in every age that seem to be all-conquering. Do not, do not yield to fear when those confusing and difficult times come your way. Stand firm. And be still. It doesn't mean to say we never do anything. But there is a stillness in the heart of every person who has come to know this God that is imperturbable because they have a hope that goes far, far beyond the vagaries of their life or this world. A hope that is absolutely secure, that God will keep them through whatever trouble there is and God will use them in exactly the way that God wants them to and God will supply all of their needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Whether that means they are in wealth or in poverty, it will be their needs that he provides and when he's ready to and only when he's ready to, he will take them to eternal glory with him. And there is nothing we can do about it except trust him. Stand firm, says Moses, and trust him. Be still. And then the second uh, response we, I would love to explore with you in detail, but we simply can't. I just need to um, alert you to it. The second response is rejoice. The response of Moses and Miriam in chapter 15 is a wonderful song that in many ways becomes an iconic song for the whole of the rest of the Bible. What they are rejoicing in here finds echoes right through Scripture. God is a warrior, they say. God fights for us against our enemies and he will defeat our our enemies. God is a recreator. 
and God will take us home. Look at how it ends. Verse 17 of chapter 15. You will bring them, that's your people, in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. At the end of the Bible, it describes the final fulfilment of that, where a new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, which is a place where God dwells, is a place where God's people dwell, an innumerable throng, a place where God personally wipes every tear from their eye, a place where God now provides light so there's no longer any need for the sun, a city which has gates constantly open because they never need to be closed, against enemies. There are no enemies left. A city but bejeweled and full of, of, of trees with fruit. It's the best description that human beings can be offered, though it is, I'm sure, a pale um, uh, imitation of the reality. And if you're a believer here, That is where you are heading. Rejoice. Christians who know the living God can have a joy even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of a sense of loss, even in the midst of that yearning that Daniel was talking about at uh, at the beginning, even with a sense of present incompleteness. They can have a joy that, that, that under, underpins that because they know their destiny. Rejoice. So how's God going to lead you in your life? You do not know. You simply do not know what is round the corner. But you know, if you are a believer here, that there is an all-wise God who will still have his hand on you. And there is an all-powerful God who will take you to glory. If you're not a believer, then let me say, though it seems to be a pathetic group to belong to, this one, though they seem in every age to be rather weak and insubstantial, with other forces triumphant, open your eyes. Indeed, perhaps God has already opened your eyes. In God's hands is the only place to be. Trust him.